he was just like, dude, what you're doing is you're trying to make television on the internet. You need to make internet on the internet. That was like a light switch. And I said, okay, internet on the internet. All right. Well, how does the internet pay? The internet pays in volume. The internet does not pay in quality. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Today's show is all about one of Boss Man's biggest passions in life. Cats. <laughs> it's next week. <laughs> oh. Today we're talking about cars, actually. All right. But if you're not interested in cars, hold on to your headsets. It's actually about much more than that. So tell me about the story of success and why you're fascinated by it. There is some car talk, which you can fast forward through if you like. But most of this podcast is going to be focused on the journey of Matt Farah, who is a very successful automotive journalist, and how he rose to fame through YouTube. Some of you guys might know Matt Farah from his channel, The Smoking Tire, on YouTube. Some of you might know him from broadcast television. Some of you might not know him at all. And if you don't know him at all, I highly encourage you to stay tuned to this episode because he's going to tell a pretty compelling story of how he rose to fame and basically bootstrapped himself to the position that he's in today. For me, it's all about cars and motorsports, as you know. And so I think I had two options. Right? It was either like start a business or do something like Matt Farah is doing, which you get to drive those cars all day, every day. But he's doing it for a profession. I chose a little bit different route, do something through business, and then hopefully be able to afford these kinds of cars. And when you say it's all about cars, you just mean that you're a real motorhead. That's the lifestyle. Can you imagine? I mean, if you had a nine to five, you wouldn't be able to spend nearly as much time on that passion of yours. Correct. But I think it's cool as a dovetail here, though, is this idea of the outsider breaking into the establishment using a unique and novel strategy. And that, to me, is something that I think we see happen on the show all the time, whether that establishment is education or accounting or all these traditionally like very exclusive, expensive places to gain access to. You can kind of sneak your way in with the internet and find a unique path into a fascinating lifestyle. It sounds like what Matt's done. So I think it's probably worth playing a short clip from one of Matt's videos so that the audience can get a sense for what his show's all about. Ian, would you mind just describing a little bit of what's going on here? So one of the most successful YouTube formats that Matt has created is a format called One Take. It's extremely low-cost production, meaning there's not a lot of editing, if any editing at all, actually, where he puts a few cameras in a car. Mind you, these are cars that people bring to him. So in this particular video, it's a 1972 Datsun 240Z. So people write into Matt, they bring him these cars, and then he just films his experience as it happens with no editing. No power steering. Or brakes. Or no power brakes either. Oh, great. Okay, this is gonna, bit of a muscle workout. I love these gauges in the middle, they're cool. How many miles are on this? 38,000, you think that's accurate? It's rolled over. 138,000. Engine's got about 30, 30, 40,000 on it. All right, well I've, old cars make me nervous. Just so, just so you know, I just don't trust them. I don't trust them either. <laughs> okay. Yeah, same thing. All right, 
Wow, the steering on center is very direct. That's, that's, I'm not used to that. Why do you think people responded to this so much? Because, you know, some of these people that have made incredible careers for themselves, they do things that maybe on the surface, they sound like a bad strategy, right? Like you've got all these established journalists doing polished reviews, sexy videos. And now you've got this guy with a bunch of GoPros trained on him talking about driving a 25-year-old car. Why did that take off? I think it took off because you actually get to see Matt's real reaction to the car and to the way it drives and to the way it sounds and to the way it feels. It's not scripted. And in the interview, Matt talks about how he never wanted to be a writer. And so I think he's found a medium that really plays to his strengths. And that's turning on the camera and just going with it. This reminds me of something we said years ago, Ian, in the towel of the hustle. It's like a good lesson for all the young students out there is you don't need to apply for things anymore. Like if you want to be an automotive journalist, you just start doing it. You just start being an automotive journalist. In the interview, I asked Matt if he could have started with this format. And so you'll have to listen in to hear what his answer is. It was sort of by accident. You know, I grew up obsessed with cars on a recreational level. I read all the magazines when I was a kid. I literally had subscriptions to five or six different car magazines, you know, all throughout my childhood, high school and college. I had kind of a variety of different cars. And I always liked the idea of being an automotive journalist, but it never, ever really occurred to me that that was a realistic job. I actually, I studied photography in high school and college. I majored in photography at the University of Pennsylvania. And when I graduated in 2004, two things happened at the same time. I was trying to make a career for myself doing architectural and landscape photography. And the two things that happened at the same time were the first commercially available digital SLR and Craigslist. Okay. And all of a sudden, I mean, like fucking overnight, my skills were basically worthless because anyone with access to a DSLR and Craigslist could do what I was doing with medium and large format film for a tenth of the price. I took a job at a graphic design company, which only lasted a couple of months because it was just boring as could be. And I just wanted to move out of my parents' house and I had to get a job. After I left that, I was like, you know what? I really love cars. All I want to talk about or think about is cars. Maybe I should just, I should get a job in cars somewhere. And in college, I had worked at a couple different dealerships and summer jobs, that kind of stuff. I thought maybe I could start my own exotic car rental company because basically I just wanted a way to buy all these cars and not have to pay for them. Right. I thought that I would call the owner of the only exotic car rental company in New York, which was Gotham Dream Cars. I don't know why, but I thought I would call them and just ask him how he did that. You know, I called this company up and I asked to speak to the owner and I'm sort of astute, I guess. And and the receptionist just goes, oh, are you calling about the job? And I said, yes, I am. (laughs) And they hired me the next day, actually. Wow. And doing what? I don't know what the exact title was, but, you know, we would pick up and drop off these. It was sort of a boutique company. And so all the rentals would be delivered personally. I did everything. You'd pick up the cars, you'd drop off the cars, you'd take them to service, you'd wash them, detail them. You know, and I got a lot of seat time in the cars. I got to learn about all these different exotic cars and how they were to drive and what would break and what wouldn't break and what the true costs of ownership were. And and I learned in about two years, I developed a pretty 
serious knowledge of the exotic car business and about what these cars were like to actually drive because I got seat time in all of them. So through that experience, did you still think that you wanted to own something like Gotham? It's funny you mentioned that because what working there for two years really taught me was that I didn't want to do that. I did the Gotham Dream Cars thing for two years from 2005 to 2007. And then my best friend from high school and I, his name is Larry, and he's sort of an entrepreneur himself, quite successful. He now has a product line called Ammo Car Care. We opened a car wash together in Harrison, New York. I ran the branding and the marketing and I'd entertain the customers and we would see these guys come in with these various sports cars, vintage cars and new cars and they'd come in and every week and get the car washed and hang out and bullshit with us and whatever, but they were never driving the cars. They never like had anywhere to drive them. And so this was kind of in the early days of Google Maps. And so Larry and I put together this driving club that people would pay us to be members of and I'd put on these drives and I'd find these roads that no one had ever seen before because people just weren't, you know, looking at maps the same way before there was Google Maps. I'd put on these events and we would we'd have 50 or 60 guys and we'd go out at five in the morning on a Sunday and, and we'd drive and have a catered lunch and, and it was cool. And after a year of doing that, you know, YouTube started. I mean, YouTube had launched, I think, in 2006, but in 07, I just said, hey, why don't we film these drives? These guys have egos and, and they want to see themselves on video. And so I hired a kid out of college and we started filming these things and they were basically like music videos. They were shitty, but you know, at the time they were okay. You know, one day he comes home with like a news anchor microphone and he goes, here, host the video. And I hosted the video. We put it up and literally a week later, a guy called and offered me a job hosting a show called Fast Lane Daily, which is still on the air on YouTube. It's so ironic that we're having the call today. That guy who ended up, I have very mixed feelings about that gentleman because on the one hand, he was the first person to ever pay me to talk about cars. And on the other hand, this morning, he was just arrested by the FBI and indicted for fraud and identity theft. And it's a double-edged sword. On the one hand, he hired me. I sold my half of the car wash because once he hired me to make videos, after a month or so of doing that, I was like, oh, this is what I'm doing. You know what I mean? This is it. Mm -hmm. And I never really enjoyed the process of writing about cars. That was what kept me away from those magazine jobs was I didn't really enjoy writing that much. But you point a camera at me and say to talk about cars, and that's just something that I'm very comfortable with. It's never, you know, some people freeze up on camera and some people can't get past the fact that they're being filmed. But for me, it's never, ever been an issue. It's just sort of something that kind of came naturally. But it doesn't seem like it was necessarily your destiny from an early age. It seems like you've kind of pulled yourself up through these jobs and through these jobs came these opportunities. Yeah, you have to get in the game, you know, physically. You have to be there. It's not going to happen by emailing somebody or whatever. You know, the guy who gave me the job came on one of our drives. That's where I met that guy. It wasn't just, oh, I saw you on YouTube and here's a job. It's I met you in person and then I saw what you could do on camera. And so now here's a job. We're talking about 2007, 2008. You know, people were just throwing money at the Internet. You know, they didn't know what was going to stick. And so the amount of money that I was offered right in the beginning to go make videos was like crazy. It was like 85 grand a year or something. Wow. To go talk about cars on video. 
tell me a little bit about that structure at that time where you like I'm going to form a production company or were you just like I'm going to No, no, the company was called Next New Networks and it was one of the earliest multi-channel networks on YouTube. You know, multi-channel networks today are big kind of umbrella companies that take on a bunch of independent channels. You know, at the time, this company was a company of I don't know 50 or 60 people that created all of its channels in-house. Okay, so very expensive to do. Very expensive to do, and huge surprise in 2009 when the internet bubble crashed, this company went right along with it and sold to Google for whatever the debt was that it had. But I found myself out of a job after about 18 months of working for this company. But making videos every week for an audience on the internet seemed exciting and it seemed accessible. You know, I learned that there's no barrier to entry on YouTube. No one says that you need to be good at this or I need to approve you for this. You just do it. You know what I mean? And and if you do it, and you're good at it or good enough at it, you know, people will come. So you had some confidence through that experience, but I'm trying to paint a picture here. You're sitting on a curb in 2007, 2008, basically with no job. Was it just the confidence that said, I'm going to invest in this myself and keep moving forward? Yeah, it was the confidence of, you know, I had a little money from selling the car wash, my half of the car wash. And me and my friend Tom, who was the cameraman I hired for the driving club, came with me when we went to make this show at Next New Networks. And that show was called Garage 419. And then when that ended, me and him were just kind of like, we enjoy doing this. And I think we should move to California and start our own company. We don't need these people. I always in the beginning kind of thought of it as a a rolling audition for television because I'd gotten a few calls from casting people from doing this show. I thought either this is going to be a rolling audition for TV and I'll get a TV job, we'll get a TV show, or TV will go away and YouTube will take over TV and we'll be there when it does. The production quality of your videos has never sucked. I mean, you said that they sucked in the beginning. Maybe I missed those. I'm talking about the New York Motor Club videos, the original videos from like 07. You know, if you watch those today... It's pretty ghetto. Okay. It seemed all right at the time. And if you look at my newest stuff that I'm doing on the smoking tire, the one takes, you know, although I use high quality camera and audio equipment, you know, I've all but abandoned editing. I did math and the math says that YouTube pays in volume, not in quality. I basically took what our average, because we lost money the first five years. On YouTube. Oh, yeah. The first five years, we thought of YouTube as doing television on the internet. Television with zero executives, television with zero oversight. But we had to make it look like television, you know, and we said, look, maybe we can't make Top Gear, but we can make something that has a Top Gear attitude on a budget out of our house for not much money. And we did that for many years, and we consistently lost money. But was it okay because you had other side jobs? Yeah, yeah. And that's what happened. I was taking other side jobs. I mean, everything from going back to Gotham Dream Cars to fucking bouncing at the local bar. I mean, I, <laughs> at one point, I had a YouTube channel with 200,000 subscribers, and I was bouncing at a bar for 50 bucks a night. Both my partner, Tom, and I were taking side jobs and funneling that money into the smoking tire to make videos that looked great, but we'd never see the money again. So you guys have, I think, over a half a million subscribers on Smoking Tire. Tell us a little bit about how that monetization works with YouTube. 
Do they just write you a check? You just enable monetization. I did it so long ago, I'm not even sure what the exact process is. But at the time, you would apply to be a partner. They would approve you for partnership. And then you just have a checkbox on your YouTube window when you upload the video that says enable ads. And they do all the selling and ads are there and you get paid. Jason Calacanis, I'm not sure if you know who he is, but he wrote kind of a piece about the evils of these kinds of relationships. Are there any downsides to you being on YouTube? I mean, do you feel like you own your content? Do you feel like you could move it somewhere? I own my content and I could move it anywhere I wanted. The problem is, and other you know smaller video sites have popped up since then, but they don't have the audience. People go to YouTube. People don't go to Vimeo to browse around. People go to YouTube and because YouTube is Google, you know, that's all integrated. And so... There's no point to being on anything but YouTube. Nobody else pays you. I mean, you know, Vimeo pays and their pay structure is fantastic, but they don't have an audience. And other sites, you know, like Snapchat or whatever, you know, you can have 10 million followers on Snapchat, but they're not paying you. So what are you doing? You know, YouTube is basically solving a math problem. There's a formula that is somewhat variable, but it involves your number of views multiplied by your minutes watched. It's calculated in what they call CPM, which is dollars per 1,000 views. I think it's actually against my YouTube agreement to divulge exactly what the math is. But in general, 1,000 views is around 8 to $9 gross if you're tier one. And we are tier one, which is the top 1% of any category. But $9 per 1,000 views isn't actually what you see because... There's a 45-55 split with YouTube. Not all views are monetizable. Mobile only pays 20% of what desktop pays because nobody clicks on mobile ads. Nobody. And then 25% of all viewers use Adblock software. And then you have to pay taxes. And so what you're left with is around $1.50 to $1.90 per thousand views. For easy math, if you do a video that gets 100,000 views, you're looking at like 200 bucks. When we were making, quote, TV on the internet, we would make a video that did 100,000 views and we'd go, that's great. We did 100,000 views. We wouldn't sit back and go, hang on a second. What did we spend on that? That math will make you cry, right? Yeah. And so we did that for a while and we had these side jobs that were supporting the smoking tire and the audience was growing and the view counts were growing and the subscribers were growing and that was all great. But, you know, five years into it, we had fucking no money. My partner got frustrated actually and left the company, Tom, and I don't blame him because he's an amazing cinematographer and a very talented editor. And there were people that were offering him nice cash for his work. So I take it you guys were in a partnership. Yes. There must have been a turning point where you realized that you were making money and what changed between not making enough money and making money? The turning point was, you know, we've done other things. We started doing our podcast, the Smoking Tire podcast, which does well. And we made a movie and all cars go to heaven. Is that right? All cars go to heaven one at the time. And we've since made all cars go to heaven two through the podcast we realized that we had a couple of very successful listeners, one of whom was Dan Greenwald, the creative director at Turn 10 Studios. And he was able to get our podcast sponsored by Forza, which was great. They did this promotional thing where they put drivers and video gamers together in these cars for a cross Europe road trip. And so I was paired up with a guy named Josh, who worked at a channel called Smosh Games. And Smosh Games is a video game channel on YouTube, and they make five videos a day 
from one room in an office and they make a half a million dollars a month. It's just guys on a Twitch stream playing video games. That's it. That's the whole thing. <laughs> and they're just rolling in cash. And I just was like, I don't know how to do that with cars. You know, cars, it's much more of a production. He was just like, dude, what you're doing is you're trying to make television on the internet. You need to make internet on the internet. That was like a light switch. And I said, okay, internet on the internet. All right, well, how does the internet pay? The internet pays in volume. The internet does not pay in quality. And I thought, what if these people who are watching and are fans, what if they don't really care about it being pretty? What if they just really want to hear my opinion on whatever car? This is where I came up with doing one takes. The term means when we were doing the higher quality stuff, I would do the entire car review in one take, and then we would edit it and make it pretty and whatever. Costing thousands and thousands of dollars. That's where all your money was. Yeah. On the cheap end, it would cost 1500 bucks to 2000 bucks to make a video. And we're talking about in equipment, expenses, and our time. And these videos would bring in hundreds of dollars, not thousands of dollars. If you spend $2,000 on a video to break even, I'm talking just break even, you got to guarantee like a million views. Guarantee. Right. Otherwise, you're losing money. With the one take format, I pretty much was just like, look, it, what if I don't have a film crew? What if I don't have B-roll? What if I don't have music? What if I don't need to go out there and shoot a car for 12 hours? What if I just do this in 15 minutes? So I worked backwards. I took our average revenue per video, which was around $275. I said, okay, this video is going to bring in $275. I will do $275 worth of work and not a dollar or a minute more. Because we built up this audience while we were losing money, we ended up with a lot of fans. And fans, it seems, really enjoy having me drive and evaluate their cars. And with the one takes, you know, I'm able to release four videos a week by myself. What happens then is if you go from one video to two videos a week, your revenue doesn't double, it triples. Because people, once checking your feed every day, or for, in my case, it's Monday through Thursday, once that becomes part of their routine, they watch more videos. They watch videos they might not have otherwise watched because it's you. It becomes like a morning show. You know what I mean? With the one takes, you know, you can watch it as a video or you could pretty much just listen to it as a podcast if you wanted. People throw it on on YouTube in their car on the way to work and they listen to it almost like it's a podcast or a morning show. But people really come to expect and depend on it. You know, I've learned that in the podcast business. If you don't show up on Thursday morning, people are really bummed about it. You know, that's where the hustle comes from. The hustle comes from the worry that one day this might not exist anymore. You know what I mean? And so that's why, you know, right now on my computer, I'm looking at one, two, three. I have 31 takes that I've shot and not yet edited. I have 25 more that I've shot, edited, and are uploaded in the queue ready for air. I don't have to touch my YouTube channel for the next month if I don't want. And every weekday at 4 a.m., a new video will appear. Survivor's bias question here. Do you think you could have started with one take? No, I don't. That's where when I talk about losing money, you know, in hindsight, we weren't losing money. We were investing in an audience that would return its investment in content with cars. So, Matt, give us a little bit of an inside view. What does the back end of the business look like? Are you going in and tweaking the analytics in YouTube? Are you editing personally? 
Yes, I do everything. And is that because you want to make this as profitable as possible for yourself? Or is that because you feel like you're the only person that has the talent to do that? No, not at all. It's because I want to keep the money. (laughs) Honest answer. You know, the margins are not great. Even if we look at our formula and we work backwards, let's call it an average of $250 a video. You got to factor in the time it takes you to get to the shoot, the time it takes you to get back, the gas you have to buy, the sandwich you bought yourself, the coffee in the morning, your computer, all of that stuff has to get added in. The net is it costs me about $20 out of pocket and one hour to one hour and 20 minutes of my time to make a video, start to finish. Do you wake up in the morning just despising that part of the job? You must enjoy it though, right? If you're still doing it. Oh, of course I enjoy it. I don't have kids. I'm not married. I don't have a lot of expenses that other adults have. I piss my money away on cars and delicious food. And that's really it. You know what I mean? I travel so much for work that I don't really go on vacations. What's great about it is because I shoot the videos between five and six at a time, and I do that once a week. So I have one day of shooting a week, one day of editing and uploading an SEO a week. And that leaves me five days to do other things like make television and do our podcast and make a movie and talk to people like you. As a part-time job, the money's great. But if you came out on a shoot day with me and you saw the kind of things that I need to do on that shoot day, that's a brutal day. It's going to be hot. It's going to be dusty up in the mountains. I'm driving 300 miles that day, maybe more. And I got to be on. I got to be on when I get in the car on camera. And then when I get out of the car, you know, there's six guys standing around who are fans and enthusiasts who kind of expect me to entertain them. So I don't really have, you know, a downtime. So it's six or seven, you know, brutal hours on those shoot days. Just to wrap up kind of the YouTube one take side of things, the basic premise, like we said, is you drive regular people's cars and they come to you somewhere, it looks like in California, park on the side of the road, and then you do these drives. How do you solicit people to bring their cars to you? Oh my God, I get dozens of emails every day. So how does the selection process work? I book five or six of them. I choose days that work around my television schedule. I have a calendar on Google Calendar. People say, hey, man, I've got a BMW M3 with these modifications. Do you want to drive it? And I say, yes, I can put you in on this day. And I try and group cars together. Not that are necessarily similar cars, but like, you know, I'll do like June 5th is going to be all hatchbacks and I'll choose a road that is complementary to that. And then June 21st is going to be cars that all have 500 horsepower and I'll choose a road that is conducive to those kinds of cars. And so there is a method to it, but it's 100% done by submission. I don't solicit anyone's cars. They all just come to me and I select from them. And I also do press cars as well, which are, you know, brand new cars from manufacturers that are loaned out to media. And by the way, how long did it take for the new Porsche Boxer to just start showing up at your house? Seven years? Because people think that kind of thing just happens, right? Like, oh, I'm mad. I review cars online. Send me a new Boxster. You know, it's hard to get in the club. Once you're in the club, it's not so bad in terms of getting the cars. You know what I mean? So it took me three and a half years to get my first Porsche. Wow. That was a GT3 RS. Not a bad first snag, huh? It took me eight years to get my first Ferrari. From what I'm told, there are 13 American journalists on the list for Ferrari. 
Wow. I'm one of them. So Ferrari is by far the hardest. Which one do you enjoy more? I mean, if you could wake up every day and say, I'm just going to do internet videos for myself, or I'm going to go do traditional media, which one would it be? If television had the consistency, you know, with internet, I have no rules. I have no boss. I like to joke that we have a production company called CGF Productions, which isn't real, but it just stands for can't get fired. Because I can't. There's nothing I could do almost that would get me thrown off of the internet. And so as long as YouTube and its revenue model exists forever and ever and ever, I can do that. I've got a job, period. TV is still the ultimate, though. They still have the budgets. They still have the ludicrously expensive insurance policies that you need to do some of the crazier stuff that we all want to do. They have people that can do things for you from police officers to close roads to catering to wardrobe. It's hard work, but TV allows you to do things that Internet budgets don't allow you to do. And I really, really enjoy doing that kind of stuff. Matt, I want to ask you a couple of questions here about car collections and investing, because I think a lot of people probably want to know what's in your stable right now. You've got a pretty interesting stable. Yeah. I'd say it's a true car guy stable, too, because you've got a few, I'd say, like regular cars in there, which is interesting. Tell us a little bit about what you own. Well... Let's see. I have a DeLorean, which was in the 80s when I was five and I first saw one of those in a magazine. You know, that was the car that made me love cars, hands down. I didn't know it was not that good of a car. I just saw it, the stainless steel and the gullwing doors. And when I was five, I saw that and I went, oh, cars are not just what mom drives me to kindergarten in. You know what I mean? They can be special. People are pretty sick of me talking about DeLoreans. So I went out and, and bought one, and it's that one. It looks kind of uh, a mess right now, but there are things you need to know about this car. First off, this is actually a barn find DeLorean. And at what point in your career were you able to afford that? I decided to buy it on my 30th birthday. Finding one and subsequently restoring it took two years, and I took delivery of it on my 32nd birthday. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I have a Corvette that I bought new when I was 18. I cashed out my bar mitzvah money account that was supposed to be for my college, and I bought the car. Awesome. My mother was not thrilled with, but I still have the car. <laughs> and I have done some modifications to it, and I love that car. I, wouldn't, I don't know if I'd go out and buy another Corvette today, but I do love that car. I have a Mustang, a Fox body Mustang that is that notchback Mustang was the car that I wanted when I was 16. My friends all had them and I told my mom I wanted to buy a Mustang and, and she said, okay, you can get a Mustang, but it has to have dual airbags. And so I couldn't get a Fox body. I had to get the rounded, the SN95 Mustang, which at the time was fine and I didn't really complain, but you know, when you're an adult, a Fox body Mustang is pretty cheap. And so right. I was like, fuck it. I'm just going to buy one now. Why not? You know what I mean? They're all over Craigslist. So I got one and I've done really insane amounts of modifications to it. And it's, I really took a car that I wanted in high school and turned it into something that drives like a car that, you know, that is a Canyon car today. I made it go around corners. And you have to. I've owned like three of those cars. And the last one I bought, it had like 273 gears. And I just thought, what am I doing? I sold it within the first two weeks. To make it really a car that performs the way that modern day cars do, you have to spend a lot of money on it, I'm sure. Yeah, I could have bought a new Mustang. <laughs> if yeah. I wanted, if I wanted. And then I've got a Nissan Skyline GTR, 
which I got from okay. Japan. It's a 1990, so it was imported under the 25-year rule. For those people that don't know, basically there's an import law that says anything older than 25, you can import. So now all these cool skylines that we all lusted for when we were kids, we can now own them. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the Skyline was the hero car in Gran Turismo 1, and it was like the best car in the game by far. Everything up to even more recent video games, you know, when you got the Skyline, you were like the fastest guy around. And what's really amazing is to actually drive one, it 100% lives up to that. It's really, really incredible to drive. You can't believe the car's 25 years old. It's spectacular. So I've got that, and I have an Aston Martin Vanquish. I have a Lexus, a 1996 Lexus with 938,000 miles on it. This is a famous car online. Yeah, I didn't really intend for it to get that way. It was sort of a happy accident. Someone sent me this link to this Craigslist ad, and it just said, who wants to get this baby to a million? And it was for this <laughs> Lexus that had 897,000 miles on it. And I thought, well, there's something dumb I can throw money at. <laughs> my first car I bought from my father it was a 92 LS 400. He gave me the dad discount on it. You know, I'm sure I, I don't remember what I paid him, but it was significantly less than whatever it was worth for his hand-me-down Lexus. It was a 92, and I guess this would have been in 97. And it was a neat car. And this one that I got now is the same color. It's a couple of years newer, but it's mostly the same. And I thought, I'm going to buy this thing, and I am going to put 100,000 miles on it. I'm going to get this car to a million miles because the car deserves it. And it seems like you give it to your friends and to other people in the business and they drive it around too. Yeah, I started with journalists mostly because other people, my friends in the industry caught on to what I was doing and thought it was funny or whatever and they wanted to help. I've offered it out to journalists, photographers and friends to help me put miles on and I've had the car a year and four months and we've put 40,000 miles on it. Isn't it interesting that probably the least expensive car in your stable is the most well known? You know what? It's such a neat conversation piece. This car, I did a lot of maintenance on it. I mean, I think I bought the car for 1200 bucks, and I probably put seven grand into it in maintenance that the previous owner just didn't ever do. But everyone who drives it loves it. If you were to drive it and without knowing, you'd probably guess it had 150 to 200,000 miles on it, not 900. It's the original engine. The engine's never had a rebuild. It's amazing. I mean, that's what the fuck I'm talking about because that car gets lent out a lot. My daily commuter is actually a 2009 Yamaha Zuma scooter. Awesome. Is just great for getting around LA. So if I was going to start a YouTube channel today and I wanted to be focused around cars and I wanted to end up where you are in a couple of years, what would be the approach that I would take these days? Dude, I don't have the first fucking clue. <laughs> a lot of people ask me that. I know how hard it is because I've been doing it for such a long time and it's taken so, I mean, I work like 80 hours a week. It's not easy doing this. I don't know what I would do if we were starting from scratch. I have no idea. Well, there's some interesting new people on the scene. Regular car reviews, for example. That's a rare example. And you don't see a lot of guys like that. Those are literary people that have applied their skills in writing and literature and history to cars. Yeah, and for those that are not familiar, regular car reviews, the basic premise is they take some shit box and they drive it around and they give their honest opinion. But then they also inject like the cultural references around that car. So I'm going to jump in here, listeners, real quick and plant this audio for you so you can hear what a regular car reviews video is all about. It's time to give what these cars deserve. Regular cars are rights reserved. 
Yeah, this is the Volvo 240. It was designed in the 70s. No air conditioning and then the official car of the Cold War. This is a Frankenstein monster of function over form. It's so slow that if one of these rolled out of Doc Brown's trailer, Marty wouldn't have gone anywhere. Well, like Pap's blue ribbon and tweed waistcoats, the uncool upstate New York style of the 240 attracted hipsters. Oh, they loved it. Oh, they loved this car. Hipsters just flocked to the 240. Mm, this beer sucks. Give me another. This vest makes me look Republican. I own five. My car makes me look old. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I mean, those guys, they're not car people. They're culture people. They're historians, and they write very well. You put them on a racetrack and they'll have no idea which way the track even goes. <laughs> but they can tell you about historical context. And they were the first ones, I mean, in a really long time that I thought did something that was actually new. You know what I mean? That was completely new. I didn't do anything new. I just tried to make cheap Top Gear for a while and then decided to eliminate camera crews <laughs> because the math didn't work out after a while. These guys are, they're actually, they've done something that is new. And I really respect that. Yeah, Dan, I think what the regular car reviews guys are doing is very interesting. Not so dissimilar to the way that Matt Farah got into YouTube, which is just basically by making what he wanted to make. And those guys are doing an excellent job of it. Hope to have them on the show sometime soon. It's interesting to see how like the styles of the videos that you make can dovetail with your talents. Like, How important do you think Matt's charisma is to the success of that one-take approach to YouTubing? I think that the fact that he can talk about cars off the cuff while he's driving them, especially when you're driving fast, and a lot of those videos is not driving super fast, but it's a talent to be able to have your mind running and your hands and your feet running as well. Right. And on the other hand, when you watch a regular car reviews, you're not struck by charisma. You're struck by like the writing prowess. Oh, it's amazing. Like I almost thought like this is someone who could work for The Daily Show. Yeah. It's such tight writing. It's hilarious. And I think that's cool because there's so many different ways that you can see success. It's more about looking at what your talents are rather than having to do it the way everybody else has done it in the past. It's true. But when you think about how many different kinds of videos have actually broken through in the last five years, it's like not a lot in terms of automotive videos. You know, so there's Matt Farah, there's regular car reviews, and there's like a couple other, but it's interesting to see. It's not like a lot. There is room for more. I agree with that. I was thinking about that in terms of the cycling world as well. I mean, there's room for more. We're at the beginning of this stuff. You got to have your angle though, right? I think the fact that Matt and regular car reviews guys and some of these other guys, they're just genuine in the way that they're approaching it. And that's really important. One element is your angle and the other element is volume of content, right? Oh yeah. I mean, Matt went into that, right? TV networks are, I mean, just putting out hours and hours and hours of content. So if I come to your YouTube channel and I like it, I got to be able to hang around for a few hours before I become like a devoted fan. Right. By the way, just as an aside, have you seen this guy with the hydro? press on YouTube. No. Oh my gosh. It's, I think it's like some German guy and he's got this like, I don't know, 1 million ton hydraulic press that comes down and he just presses all kinds of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the guy's probably, I think he's almost got like a million subscribers. It's amazing. It's amazing the things you can find on YouTube. An episode for another day. Speaking of episodes, next week, we are going to have Russ Perry from Design Pickle on the show. 
Yeah, Russ had a great story to tell. I'm really excited to put that one out. You know, the amazing thing about this interview, I think, is just how much success he's had in such a short amount of time and how far the failure strung before that. <laughs> yeah, how close he was to complete ruin. It's really inspiring story. And Russ certainly tells it in a really engaging way. So we're looking forward to that one. All right, boss man, we'll see you next week. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. What is the car that your inner car guy won't allow you to own, but you want to own anyways? I had a Chevy Volt for two years, and it was amazing. Okay. I mean, honestly, it was amazing. It was an appliance, but it was the best appliance you can ever imagine. It was fantastic. And I, when my sister moved to Los Angeles, I actually gave it to her, and she really likes it. I am constantly tempted to buy another appliance because it was really nice to drive around L.A., Will it be a Tesla or a Volt? or a- I don't have Tesla money right now. And if I had Tesla money, if I was going to spend six figures on a car, it would be something that I would have thought would be investment grade. There's a limit to how much luxury I need in my life. So my next car that will be my everyday car is a Ford Focus RS. Very cool car. Yeah. Yeah. Fastest you got caught speeding or silliest thing you got a ticket for? I once got six tickets at once on the Bull Run Rally in 2010. Not exactly proud of that, but it was uh, 140 in a 65. That was that, yeah. And did you go to jail for that? No, I didn't. I got six tickets and a mandatory court appearance, but he did not arrest me. I don't know why he didn't arrest me, but he he probably should have, but he didn't. Which state was this in? New Jersey. Uh, Car you regretted buying almost immediately after purchasing? Hummer H1. Don't ever buy one of them. They're absolute piles of dog shit. Vehicle out of your reach right now, but eventually you'd like to have in your stable? Ford GT. 2005 Quicksilver. Least favorite group of car owners by Mark? BMW. They're a bunch of whiners. Yeah. God forbid you say that a BMW isn't the greatest thing ever made. They get so upset. They're so sensitive. Best sounding factory sound system? Range Rover. Meridian. 27 speaker, 1900 watts in the Range Rover autobiography. It will fucking blow your mind.